Hello, belabored listeners. This is Josh Idelson. Some of you know that I've just taken a job as a reporter with Salon, where I'll be covering labor, politics, and inequality. This means that I'll no longer be a regular host of the belabored podcast. Doing this podcast has been a tremendous joy and educational experience. I'm incredibly grateful to co-host Sarah Jaffe, as well as to our producer Natasha Lewis, our editor Sarah Leonard, and to all of you who have listened to the podcast, shared the podcast, and informed and filled the podcast with your story ideas, your insights, your arguments, as well as to each of our tremendous guests, going all the way back to Karen Lewis, who joined us for our maiden episode. It's been a a tremendous privilege to be a co-host of this podcast, and I, I now will take on the role of eager, belabored listener and fan, and I I hope that I will someday earn an arg of my own on a future episode. And I am delighted to say that the podcast will be in tremendously capable hands going forward. Welcome back to Belabored, everyone. It's episode 24, and as you just heard, it's my first without Josh. But I will not be alone forever, or even for much of today. Today I'll be joined by longtime organizer and professional hellraiser Stephen Lerner, and in the coming weeks we'll have guest hosts and a new permanent co-host. We wish Josh all the best, and are sure he'll be popping up in the ARG section frequently, and we hope as a guest frequently as well. Longtime listeners for all 24 weeks now know that we start the show with a news roundup, and I'm going to start you off with some good news, that rare thing here on Belabored. New York City Council, which is responsible for a good bit of the good news I think I've brought you in recent months, passed a bill called the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act yesterday, which may be the only worker-friendly piece of legislation that billionaire soon-to-be ex-mayor Bloomberg has not vowed to veto. That is right, he is going to sign this. They don't have to pass it twice. The bill passed the City Council unanimously, 47 to 0. You may ask, why do pregnant workers need protections. I thought they already were protected under anti-discrimination law. Well, that's sort of true. But what actually has been happening is that workers in particularly low-wage jobs that require a lot of physical labor, while they're not being explicitly discriminated against, they're also not being allowed to take precautions that would be necessary for their health, such as drinking water on the job or maybe sitting down instead of standing for an eight-hour shift. And there's been little that they can do about it. So this bill would allow them to request reasonable accommodations from their boss, um, something like, again, having a chair, having a bottle of water, schedule changes that might be necessary for doctor's visits, things like that. Basically, just the kinds of things you would like your boss to allow you to do if you were perhaps carrying another human. This bill is similar to something that was in Governor Cuomo's women's equality agenda, which has been unsurprisingly stalled in Albany, where good bills go to die. So the New York City Council took action itself. Um, Also, New York Representative Jerry Nadler has introduced something similar in Congress, which is also where good bills go to die. So who knows what will happen with that. But for now, at least within New York City, it is going to be a little bit better of a place to be if you are pregnant and need to work. From New York City to Bangladesh, where workers this week have forced factories to close as they took to the streets in protests for higher wages and better safety protections. The Guardian reports that police used batons, rubber bullets, and tear gas to try to quell the protests. And Reuters reports that at least 50 people were injured in clashes with the police on Monday. The protests, of course, continue after the collapse of Rana Plaza in April. Um, 
factory complex which saw the deaths of over 1,100 people. The workers are demanding $100 a month minimum wage. That's $100 a month, not a week, not a day, a month. Um, it, they currently make somewhere around $38 a month. They are the second lowest wages in the world. The workers last got a raise in 2010, and the factory owners have offered them a 20% raise, which worker representatives have called inhuman and humiliating. Factory owners, of course, blame the global brands for whom they manufacture clothing, including Walmart, Gap, H&M, and more. An H&M spokesperson told reporters that the company supports the workers' demand for higher wages, though it's unclear what they're willing to do to support those workers. This is a theme that we will talk about a little bit later on the show, the question of who actually has the power to set these wages. But in any case, it appears that the brief window in which Americans and others around the world pay attention to the people who make their clothes for very little money and in very lousy conditions is actually expanding as the workers continue to take the streets and demand better treatment. We will no doubt talk about this more in upcoming episodes, and there will be links to these stories, as always, on Descent's website. It's getting lonely in here, so I think I'm going to bring on somebody else now. And I have with me, via Skype, Stephen Lerner, longtime organizer, mostly with SEIU, the architect of the Justice for Janitors campaign, and something of a freelance troublemaker these days to talk about, well, to tell us what he's been up to. So tell me, you've been working a lot on the issue of student debt. How does a labor organizer get involved in student debt organizing? Tell us why this is a labor issue. There's 40 million people in this country that have $1.2 trillion in student debt. 60% of those people are over 30 years old. And so even the name student debt is confusing because most people that are carrying student debt aren't students. They're people that are working. And if you go to union members in lots of occupations... Um, especially in the public sectors, whether it's social worker or nurses or any of the professions that are often require a lot of degrees and don't pay much. Right. You hear people talking about what's holding them back in life and what is like a, a burden is a massive debt they have. Yeah. So student debt is a huge issue for young workers and actually for middle-aged workers who have gone back to school. Um, so it goes to the heart of why people aren't able to pay their bills and why they're sort of falling farther and farther behind. So talk about some of the work that you're doing around student debt and some of the uh, coalitions and some of the unions that are involved in this work. What we've done is there's now a couple hundred different groups around the country that are engaged in some way around the question of student debt. And we're really looking at a couple issues. One is how do you reduce the $1.2 trillion in debt that people have? Right. The second is how do you make education affordable and quality and debt-free going forward, which means you have to deal with the question of state financing and how do you fund it properly. And then the third part that is dearest to my heart is thinking about what is Wall Street's role in skimming off of higher education. And so we're really digging in on the question of how does Wall Street profit off of higher education? How do they get into people's wallets? And how are they both the cause of increasing debt, and how do they profit off the whole situation. So we're starting to do a deep dive report to document all the different ways that Wall Street is profiting off of higher education in a way that does nothing to improve education, but sucks money out of the systems to the guys um, on Wall Street. So who is the we that is working on this report? Well, there's all 
different people involved. Out at Berkeley, there's a group of both graduate students who are involved in the graduate student unions who did this report called Swapping Our Future that demonstrated how the university had negotiated all these bad deals where the university was paying much too much interest. There's folks from AFT, there's folks from SCIU, NEA. I mean, most of the major unions are increasingly interested in the issue of student debt, I I really think from two ways. One, their existing members and the burden it is on them, but also the question of, you know, what's happening to the workforce of the future? And if what you're saying is you're going to make education um, inaccessible for more and more of the population, then that's really a labor issue. Right. And the funniest thing I'd say is if you ask a lot of young, when I say young union members, I mean people, you know, in their 30s and 40s, what the biggest thing, their biggest debt is, it's student debt. It's why they can't buy a home. It's why they can't buy a car. I talked to a a young social worker from Pennsylvania who works for the state. She's an active union member. She's got $100,000 in debt, and I think she makes in the 30,000s a year. You know, one of the things we think about is there's a debt-to-income ratio, which is sort of the more important and valuable a job is, the lower the wages and the higher the student debt. Yeah, especially in sort of caring professions like social work and teaching and nursing. What you brought up there, though, is a really interesting point, right? Because, I mean, some people will argue that to deal with the student debt problem, we really just need to raise incomes. And what I think that actually illustrates is the fact that we can't really solve any of these problems individually. We sort of have to solve a lot of them together. Yeah, the notion that we could deal with student debt by raising income is, is, is sort of silly. I mean, first off, income is stagnant or dropping. Right. And the rate of increase of education debt is, is astronomical. And the idea that any wages, that any raises that workers would win would go to pay for education sort of accepts the assumption that education should be incredibly expensive and only for the elites. And, you know, it wasn't so long ago in this country that there was free education in lots of places or affordable education. And so when we talk about the student debt campaign, our goal is how do you get to accessible, quality, affordable, debt-free education that folks should be able to go to school, whether it's community college, whether it's a four-year college, whether it's a trade school, and get out with a quality education where they're not drowning in debt. And that's a worker issue. And, you know, whenever I ride the subway in New York, I see all those ads. You know, you can become a heating and air conditioning expert in two weeks by giving us $10,000, which is a loan from the federal government, which then you end up with a degree that doesn't equal anything. So one of the myths here is that student debt is a problem for people going to NYU, when you're out in meetings with union members, everybody tells a story about they signed up for computer class and Excel spreadsheets from a private college. They spent $10,000. They didn't get a certificate. They didn't learn anything. And now they've got this debt hanging around their head. And so to think about student debt, you have to think about the entire for-profit industry that's targeted veterans, that targets workers, that targets poor people. To and, and plays on their desire to improve their lives, to lock them into programs that don't teach them anything but run up enormous debt. Yeah. You mentioned that there are some unions, you mentioned AFT, NEA, that are putting some resources behind this. What are some of the things besides money that they're working on to combat this issue, not for members, but for, you know, on the job, anything else? 
Well, we're in the early stages right now. And so I, I think you can look at this as much of the work in recent years has been about combating bad federal legislation. So there's been very robust and active work about how to limit the damage, how to not have interest rates go too high. But now what we're looking at is how do you dig deep and really build a base that wants to fight long-term for affordable education? So as I said, there's really a couple different prongs of the campaign. We're saying one part is, you know, can we actually enroll lots of people in programs that reduce their debt under existing programs? Um, Because there actually are programs that people don't take advantage of. How do we stop interest rates? There's all the defensive stuff that needs to happen. But I think, in a way, the most important piece here is on a state level and a federal level, how are we starting to combat the whole notion that education is really something that only sort of an elite few get to get to do? So I think with unions, it's going to be everything from work with rank and file members. And, and, and this has already started just to talk about this shouldn't be a secret that you have massive debt. You know, people have to sort of fess up to and feel comfortable saying, hey, you know, I owe $50,000. And so it's everything from, I don't know what the right word is, the consciousness raising that this is a common problem you shouldn't feel guilty about, to then identifying who really are responsible for it and starting to get folks in motion targeting not just Sally May, but the whole industry of debt collectors, the people that are now on the boards of universities who simultaneously are supposed to be doing university policy, but are really representing banks who profit off of it. So we're trying to put together a broad program that tackles all the different arms of the student debt problem. Right. You mentioned the people who are on university boards, the people who are, as you said, profiting from this whole mess. The way we're looking at the private student loan industry, it's been changing a lot in recent years. Um, I don't know if you can answer this, but um, sort of what is the role of Wall Street in all of this mess currently, and how is that changing? Well, so this is an interesting question, and it's a really good question from a very wise reporter. Um, (laughs) So a lot of people have this start off with, well, it used to be all private loans, and it was clear where the profiteering was. Right. And now of the $1.2 trillion, only $250 billion is private loans. So therefore, and that's shrinking. So therefore, why do we say Wall Street's profiteering? So one thing we're going to do, and I'll go into more detail in a second, is document the many ways they're profiting. But let me give some examples. The federal loans that are public are serviced by private loan companies and not just Sally Mae. It's very similar to what happens in housing, where somebody makes the loan and then Bank of America services it, and their incentive is actually to run up fees on you. So we have a whole industry who is incentivized not to solve student debt problems, but to run up fees and penalties. And so that's one piece of it. The actual collection of the money from students is done by Wall Street firms like Sally Mae, who make big money on it. I think there's a billion dollars a year spent just on debt collection from the private sector of federal debt. And of that, JP Morgan, Citibank, there are banks that through the private equity arm own debt collection companies. So one part of it is on the federal loans, what are all the ways that they profit off of those federal loans? Then there's this really interesting thing that's developing now. And um, the UC Berkeley folks have done some of the biggest research. And there's an article that I'll send you from the uh, Chronicle of Higher Education about it, is that because we've cut the funding 
to public universities dramatically, the way they funded themselves is by taking out loans. And I think public uh, research universities, their amount of debt they have has increased 86% in recent years. So one of the ways that Wall Street profits is on the one hand, they lobby as part of their industry to reduce the taxes. Then the budgets to public schools are cut. And then they say, aha, have we got a deal for you? And just like Detroit and all these cities that are now burdened with these outrageous interest rate swaps and where there's bond scandals, you now have universities who are doing very complicated transaction. Actually, public uni- private universities, to my memory, is that Harvard's endowment lost a billion dollars when Larry Summers was there hmm. over a really complicated interest rate swap. So essentially, you're financializing education. And it's another way that you know, that Wall Street sucks money out. And it's not just the loans um, that schools take out to build buildings um, because they no longer have adequate funding. Right. But there's also this sort of arms race now that schools, because you've cut their state funding, want to recruit students from all over the country who are the biggest achievers who can afford to pay to go to Michigan or Berkeley. So then you have to build the stadium. Then you have to build the fancy dorms that have nothing to do with education. And of course, Wall Street is waiting out there to take out, to give you a huge loan that they have um, really good terms on. So as our next step is to really document every way from when I'm on campus now, you know, you used to have, this has been written a lot about, you used to have a school ID. You now have a bank-issued card that's both your food card, your ID, and your bank card. Right, and right. so as you start to look at it, at every level, Wall Street's found a way to pull money out. And the argument we're going to make is it's basically inefficient. Instead of the state funding education, the state underfunds it. Wall Street then loans money, gets a piece of the action, and it would actually be cheaper just to pay for it up front. Yeah. A friend of mine who is actually a wonderful writer who is now at Slate writing about higher education, her name is Tressie McMillan Cottom. When I was writing the piece about payroll debit cards, she was telling me that she, as a, a graduate student employee, was getting her pay on these payroll debit cards. So once again, it was just another place that Wall Street was inserting itself into uh, the process, in this case, taking fees off of her salary. And what's so amazing about it is it's little and small, right? It is the debit card that's, you know, $1.75 a transaction. It's, you know, huge loans. But even the other thing that just is crazy to me is that you have people on the regions of the board of trustees of universities whose main job is working for a bank. And the bank then has policies that are bad for public education. And so one of the issues we want to raise is really Wall Street should be off campus. And why in the world should I be on the board of a university that my company's actively defunding? Could you imagine if you or I were on the board of um, Bank of America or Goldman and our official policy was break up the big banks? We'd be kicked off, but yet we have so-called public-minded citizens who are representing financial institutions who are investing in for-profit colleges who then serve on the boards of major universities. It's, right. sort, of, it's sort of backwards. I actually want to raise that it's a violation of fiduciary duty. You can't wear both hats. You got started doing anti-Wall Street work years ago. Tell us how that happened and how, how you went from basically organizing workers to doing this kind of organizing? 
I don't know if you know the song, There Was an Old Lady That Swallowed a Frog. Do you know that song? <laughs> yes. And, you know, she swallowed a fly. I don't know why she swallowed a fly. Then she followed, swallowed a spider and, you know, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. So it really started when we were organizing janitors. And we right. started off saying, aha, the cleaning contractor is not really the real problem. They're just a payroll agency for the building owner. So we thought we were really smart. And we said we have to focus on the building owner. But then we, it turned out that the building owner who employed the cleaning contractor, who employed the janitors, in fact, often was just a creature of various pension funds and investment firms. And so what happened over a series of years is we saw two simultaneous trends, which is a greater and greater consolidation of financial power, owning more and more, and a monopolization with the disaggregation of employment for workers, meaning workers no longer were paid for by the people that really had money and power. So first in justice for janitors, we started working our way up the food chain and realizing that we kept ending up with giant real estate firms, giant financial firms, Goldman Sachs, they were all interrelated and that's really who had power. So that was the first piece of it. And then the second piece was as private equity grew, um, which are really leveraged buyout companies and you know, a couple of years ago, I don't know if the number is still accurate, six of the 10 largest employers in America were private equity companies, yeah. meaning KKR, Blackstone, Texas Pacific. And we realized that even when we were organizing giant companies that had hundreds of thousands of workers, they in turn were owned by people like, you know, giant private equity companies who then got their money from Wall Street. More and more, this idea developed that we're having enormous fights with giant financial firms and companies over things that are relatively small. How do 100 workers get a union? And I think an increasing number of us have been saying, let's look at really who has power and simultaneously talk about organizing their workers and about how they're treated, organizing the homeowners are screwing, organizing the students that have debt with them, and how do we take all the forces that are being pushed down by Wall Street and organize them simultaneously to say, we want to bargain with you about how you're screwing our lives up. Any luck? Has Jamie Dimon come to the bargaining table yet? Well, you know, it's funny. People are very literal about the bargaining table and yeah. that, you know, somehow that the bargaining table happens because you're sitting across the room with them right. versus the bargaining table happens because you put pressure in lots of different ways and people change their behavior. And so I think it's sort of fascinating to see that in the last couple of months that all of a sudden there's a lot of prosecution of banks. And that in turn is leading, I mean, all the fines and everything, and it's insufficient and these guys could go to jail. But I, I think it's a direct response of the unending pressure that's been put on. You know, it was only two months ago that folks were getting tasered and sitting in at the Justice Department um, protesting non-prosecution. And now we have J.P. Morgan. I don't know if they have $7 billion in fines in the last month or two. So I think that if you think about that, what we're, when you're talking about bargaining with the one-tenth of the one percent, the teeny group that controls the country, it's less that they're directly negotiating with us, but the pressure is building on them. And in some cases, for example, there have been huge modifications of mortgages. In very narrow cases, we're winning battles over individual homes. I think probably the most interesting development right now is in Richmond, California, yeah. where the city is saying, if you won't reduce principal, we're going to seize the mortgages through imminent domain. So I think there's beginning pieces of people identifying leverage that forces folks that have power to take regular people seriously. So I want to switch gears 
just for a little bit at the end here, because you talked briefly about the, working with the janitors, you were a longtime organizer of low-wage workers with SEIU. Um, do you have any thoughts about the current fast food campaign that SEIU is backing and where it's going? Well, let me go back even before janitors in a way, if it's not too much of a digression. But, you know, I started off with the Farm Workers Union and then with the uh, union that no longer exists anymore, the International Ladies Garment Workers Union and then SEIU and janitors. And in all those cases, what drove the organizing was an analysis of who really had power. So in the apparel industry, it was the department store that was buying the clothes had much more power than a 50-person, you know, cut-and-sew shop in apparel. I mean, in farms, it was the grocery stores that bought the goods. So sort of my my work has always been driven by sort of who has power, how do you go after them at the highest level. And the second part is, you know, how do workers play a huge role in this and, and the importance of strikes. So what I think is really exciting about the fast food work is the reinventing of the strike. You know, we did a lot of that in janitors, but a lot of people in unions had sort of given up on the notion that workers would strike, that strikes could have any value. And one of the pieces of fast food that's really important is workers are striking and they're taking action to say it's unacceptable, whether it's not just our wages, it's lack of air conditioning, it's our boss treats us like, treats us like garbage. But I think the critical issue on fast food and almost every organizing we do of low wage worker is who actually can solve the problem. And what's fascinating about fast food is the franchise system. So McDonald's or Wendy's or Burger King, if I own a franchise, they'll tell me exactly how many napkins I need. They'll tell me how to cook the food. They'll tell me how much I have to spend in advertising. They control almost every aspect of my life except how I treat workers. And they actually create a system where they get a percentage of the profit that almost makes it impossible for the franchisor to pay dramatically more. So I think on fast food, one of the questions is, how do you hold McDonald's accountable? How do you get the franchise agreements to say workers are as important as the hamburger meat? Workers are important as whether the bathrooms are clean. And it really goes to the heart of sort of the sickness of how the economy is organized, which is giant banks and corporations feel they have a responsibility for everything but the people that actually do the work. Thanks to Stephen Lerner for being with me today while I'm sad and lonely without Josh. We'll link to some of his work and also to pieces about student debt, student debt organizing, and much more on Descent's website. Now comes the time where I'm going to have to try to live up to Josh's legacy and say, "Arg! I wish I had written that. And sadly, I will sound really silly if I try to ask myself a dramatic question to lead into this. So I'm just going to tell you that my piece this week is at The Nation. It is by Laura Flanders. When I first started out as a journalist, I worked for Laura at Grit TV, and I'm honestly really surprised I haven't named one of her pieces before this. Laura helped me learn how to cover labor at a time when the labor beat was even less popular than it is now. I know that's hard to believe, but remember a time before Wisconsin? Um, Laura has been covering the work of Domestic Workers United and their Caring Across Generations campaign for a while, and her piece this week at The Nation looks at the welcome domestic workers got at the recent AFL-CIO convention and what it means for those workers to be, quote-unquote, part of the family. She writes, 
Domestic workers know a thing or two about familial relations. Described as dears and saints and angels by their employers, the help have worked for poverty wages and miserable conditions in Americans' homes since the nation's birth. In the widely eulogized New Deal era, the Fair Labor Standards Act, which labor unions praised, excluded people who worked in homes, in fields, and in most kinds of retail and service work. It wasn't called special rights for white men, but that's what it amounted to. Even when the FLSA was updated in the 70s, domestic workers were still excluded. They're not workers, the lawmakers said. They're companions, members of the family. Being welcome to the family is all well and good, Laura notes, but what comes next when being one of the family has often meant doing a lot of work for very little in exchange? There's been a lot of attention paid, and of course we talked about this in recent episodes, to what it means that the AFL-CIO is opening to non-union workers groups and also to non-work-related progressive groups. So we will, again, no doubt be talking about this more, and as you may well guess, I will be talking about domestic workers and domestic work much more in the future. That is all we have for you today. I invite you to join me next week when I will have an exciting guest co-host, and to, as always, send us your comments, send us your suggestions, tweet at us at belabored, tell Josh that you're going to miss him and his pirate noises, and... Check out his ongoing work at Salon, which we're sure will be excellent. And join us again next week for episode 25. This life is hard, so hard I'm